Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we need you, Lord. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Lord, I just pray as we go through this lesson that it will be helpful, that we will honor you through it, that we will take those things that we need to apply to our lives, and that we won't just hear what you say, but we will do what your word says, that we will be peacemakers, Lord. Father, I, I just thank you for this time you've given us together, and I just pray that it will honor you. Lord, just give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one more disclaimer. I absolutely do not have this all figured out. I am not here as, oh, Anne is the expert peacemaker. My life is, is not that. I try, I want that. But, yeah, just talk to my husband. I'm, you know, there's, there's pictures in my mind of, you know, there's, there's people who are very calm and just, you know, never get their feathers ruffled. And I'm not that. I want to be that, and I strive for that. But I am speaking, this is more to me. Um, I shared when I taught this on Saturday a few weeks ago, that a year ago when I taught this, Jesus name, um, I just want to cover it. I got in an argument with my husband before coming to teach on peacemaking. It's like, and it was over the closet. So that's just goofy <laughs> that he didn't notice something that I thought he should have noticed at midnight. But what can I say? I threw some gasoline on the fire and it was bad. So I'm thankful that at least today I made it here without doing that. So, so I just want you to know that. Please don't think that I'm some expert and that's why I'm here. I'm here because I, I'm the expert at not doing it the right way. So, um, and then the second disclaimer is that tons of this comes right from Peacemaker. Um, and I want to highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Um, the Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And then this is another helpful resource, uh, Communication and Conflict Resolution by Stuart Scott. Much smaller, so, you know, it depends where you're at. But this is, I have lent this book to many people if they're in a conflict and they're wondering, how in the world do I work through this? It's like, can I lend this to you? And I especially want to point out the back of the book where it actually goes through kind of the steps of if you've offended, if you're the offender, you know, how to go. So both really good resources. I am fairly certain both are on the book table. So want to just give credit where credit is due. So as, as we look at this, this isn't something new. Um, conflict has been around since pretty much Genesis 3. That's where it starts. And we see that, we see in the very beginning, I mean, we're three chapters into scripture when we see Adam and Eve's fellowship with God is broken. We see blame shifting where Adam, which I love the audacity of Adam, he blames God and says, God, it's a woman you gave me. It's a woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree. 
and I ate it. So in other words, Adam said, God, it's your fault for giving me her. And then she turns and said, "Mm, God, not my fault. It's the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. It's This is nothing new. I do want to remember and remind you that right in Genesis 3.15, we do see the first announcement of the gospel where the word says, he will crush your head, and that's speaking of Jesus, and you will strike his heel, and that's talking about Satan. Jesus deals the death blow to Satan. Satan strikes Jesus' heel. Praise God for that. As we go through all, there's just tons of examples in conflict, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. I just want to mention a few. We see, you know, we saw Adam and Eve. We see Cain and Abel. We see man's wickedness in Genesis 6-5, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That was description of man. And I'm sure, as I know most of you are going through a reading plan, you see conflict over and over and over. Um, We see that Herod was furious. We see all kinds of discussions. Um, It's just throughout Scripture. One example that I do want to share is from Luke 4, 16 through 30. And it's an example of how quickly things can change. Here's Jesus. He's in Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and he's in the synagogue. And all the people, if you look at verse 22, he's speaking. And all verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? They thought he was a good guy. If you go down just a few verses... It says in verse 28, and all the people, these are the same people in the synagogue, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And the things that they heard was that Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And what that was referring to, and I'll quote Matthew Henry, is What they were angry about was that he, Jesus, intimated some kindness God had in reserve for the Gentiles, which the Jews could no means bear the thought of. So they go from loving Jesus, saying, wow, what a great guy, to they want to take him to the hill and throw him off. That is that where you see they were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up, drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill, on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were a fickle group. And I think we know we can be like that. And I've got listed on your handout some others that you can look at. Mary and Martha, you know, you see throughout Paul's letter, he's constantly encouraging them to be unified. And we see the example even with Paul with Barnabas, and they had a split. So we know conflict abounds. Do we think it's any different today? I think we all know there's conflicts in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, cities, states, nations, and world. I mean, our world is in craziness right now. Um, 
we shouldn't be surprised. These conflicts are all a result of the fall. It goes back to Genesis 3. Conflict is everywhere. It can go all the way from somebody defriending you on Facebook all the way to murder. And I have to tell you, the church is not immune. It happens in the church. And there have been recent examples with a very large church um, that got ripped apart because of conflict. So it's nothing new. Nothing's new under the sun. One example from scripture um, that I'd like us to take a look at is Philippians, in Philippians 4. And I've thought of this often, that, you know, it's most likely a church that meets in somebody's home. We probably have one gal sitting on that side of the room and another gal sitting on the other side of the room, good old Yudia and Sintiki. And they're sitting there listening to this letter being read to them. And in front of the whole church, most likely, and here's what they're hearing. You know, they've already gone through three chapters. Now we're at chapter four. Okay, and obviously it's a letter. There weren't chapters, but we have the benefit of that. But they're hearing, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then the bomb gets dropped. I urge Judea and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Can you imagine? I am sure they're like, how did he know? And the Apostle Paul is pleading with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then it even gets a little bit harder. Paul says, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They had to get somebody else involved and say, hey, help these women get along. So this is nothing new. And I've often, you know, I, I just kind of have this picture of me sitting on one side of the room, another lady on the other side of the room, and, you know, a letter comes from Scott Maxwell to Smed Yates saying, hey, tell Anne and Susie Q to get along. Like, what would that have been like? But conflict does abound. But there is a command in them. They need to get along. So remember that becoming a Christian doesn't mean conflict disappears. Our relationship with the Lord changes. We're no longer under God's wrath as believers, but there is still conflict. Um, We are given new abilities from the Lord to live in a way that pleases God but we have to work at it. Um, Another reason that I think this lesson is important because I've thought about, you know, do we need this lesson? Is this, you know, why do we do this? Um, There are multiple commands to live at peace. It is throughout scripture. And there's some listed on your handout. I'm going to read just a few of them. And I'd encourage you, if you get a chance, go back and go through them. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. Ephesians 4, 1 talks about the unity of the Spirit. 
2 Timothy 2.22, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are commanded to live at peace. 1 Peter 3.8 says, to sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And then it goes on quoting Psalm 34 and in verse 11 it says, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We are called to seek peace. We are called to pursue it. It's not okay to just put that command aside and say, well, that's not for me. Yes, it is. Um, and then just a reminder, something that helps me just keep things in check is Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40, which is where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And the reminder I have shorthand is love God, love your neighbor. And most sin, well, all sin is ultimately against God. But all sin, it's either against God or against your neighbor. Or against both. So if you can keep that in front of you, if you're in the midst of a conflict, you can ask yourself, am I loving God in this? Am I loving my neighbor in this? So in order for us to live in peace, unity, be like-minded, have harmony, harmony, we need the gospel. And so I want to just remind you, you know, I'm not just giving you a list of, okay, go be peacemakers, do, do, do. I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you that the gospel isn't just for the day you were saved. It's, you need the gospel just as much today as the day that you were saved. And you will need it. You know, I have the picture of myself sitting in the rocking chair at the nursing home, 90 years old. I will need the gospel just as much then as I need it today and the day when I first believed. We need to remind ourselves of that. So I'm not, I am giving you a to-do list, but I want you to know you have the power to be a peacemaker because of what Christ has done. Without that, this is just a self-help seminar, and I don't want to do that. And I don't want to make you better Pharisees by saying, oh, by the way, ladies, get your act together. You need to be peacemakers. No, you need to be peacemakers because we represent Christ, but it's because of what he has done for us. If you need to remind yourself of the gospel, um, one of a great place to go remind yourself besides scripture is just go to our church's biblical conviction. It's conviction number five the doctrine of sanctification, and it walks through the gospel um, and why it's so, so, so important. So I just want to encourage you, don't, you know, as you hear the to-dos, you got to remember, oh yeah, remember she said that. So that is 
so, so important. Um, as our doctrinal statement says, as the believer lives the Christian life, he must never graduate from the gospel. So let's not graduate from the gospel. Let's keep that before us um, as we kind of launch into here's what God's word says. So we've, we've got that. I mean, that's the thing that we have to hold, hold up high under ourselves or we'll end up just being better Pharisees, and we don't want that. So on your handouts, there are, um, there's a list of scriptures that I've called preventative. And one of the things for me that's helpful is reminding myself, what does God's word say about preventing conflict? Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so I've added a list of verses. And this isn't all the ones. I could have kept going and made the list way longer. Um, but just reminders. When, especially if we're going into a situation where we know, boy, this is one where I end up getting in trouble. This relationship, this is where I really need to work hard. These verses can be really, really helpful to keep in before you. Um, think about yourself. Are you the kind of woman, I know I'm asking myself the same question, okay, who stirs up trouble? Or are you the kind of woman that diffuses situations? And I am not talking about being a doormat or a clam who just says nothing and looks really holy because you never say anything um, or just agreeing with somebody just to prevent conflict. But do you follow Scripture's counsel? And so I just want to read through some of these because anything I say, you can kind of take your eraser and go, okay, well, I'm not sure about that. But this is God's word, so you can't do that. Um, and that's where there's power. There's power in God's word because of what Christ has done. So here's just a few friendly reminders. Um, and I, like I said, I think if you're going into a situation where you think you may struggle more than others, um, with conflict with someone, I think these may be helpful. So Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Proverbs 12, 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 1, and I think we all know this one, a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think we've all seen that, that, boy, I hear that, you know, somebody's giving me the business and I just lash right back out and now you've got two people up to their eyeballs in sin, sinning with each other. Um, Proverbs 18.2 is such a good reminder. The tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs 18, 13, he who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. Proverbs 18, 17, 
The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 25, 11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And this is a passage from Proverbs um, 26, 17 through 23. And I remember a situation um, several years back where I was there was a conflict going on and someone jumped in the middle of it and then I read this and I was like, whoa, scripture is right. And verse 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. And you can imagine taking a dog and grabbing it by the ears. That dog is gonna bite and kick and scream and, and it's going to be ugly. That's what happens when we get into a quarrel, not our own. Verse 18, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. So you see, quarreling ceases when we're not whispering as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel, our fervent lips with an evil heart. So we see the picture of someone who isn't using their words wisely. And then again, the greatest commandment, is on, on your list. Love God, love your neighbor. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And one that I think most of us have probably memorized, Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I know for me, if I follow that admonition, I will say much less. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but only, but also to the interest of others. In Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And James 4 talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And the point there is that we can get in big conflict because of our desires. Not evil desires. It can be our good desires that can, I think we all know, it can be a desire for something very righteous, something godly. But when we elevate it to the status of an idol that I must have this, we can cause conflict. 
And this is not on your handout, but I would encourage you to uh, write first, just the book of First Peter. That is a place to go. Um, and I believe, uh, in my mind, okay, so this is, this is an alert. Don't take it for what it's worth. I think it's an especially encouraging book for women who may be in a place where they're being sinned against. Um, the book of First Peter was written to encourage suffering believers in Asia Minor to stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution. This was, First Peter was written under the persecution of Christian under Nero's reign, and that was awful. Nothing like we can even begin to imagine. And the intent of the letter was to strengthen believers in the midst of the suffering and the persecution that they were facing. And I believe that this message continues to speak to us today. It reminds us of our heavenly hope and our internal, eternal inheritance in the midst of suffering. And so if, if you are suffering from being unjustly accused, from just somebody just pouring a lot of wrath on you, or if you come across a friend, that is a place to tell them, hang your hat in First Peter. Spend time there because it is encouraging. We see Christ's example of how he responded. So I, those are kind of just a few places to go to just help be a peacemaker. Um, but we can do all of that, and we still can have conflict. So how do we respond when there's conflict? And the definition of peacemaking is responding to conflict biblically. Responding to conflict biblically. So there are different aspects of peacemaking. First is when I'm the offender, when I have sinned. And then when I have been offended, or I've been sinned against. So the first thing we want to look at is when I'm the offender, when I have sinned, what do I need to do? So when I know I have sinned and I think I need to go seek forgiveness, what do I do? And I want to give kind of a another little, I don't know, an asterisk, okay? I want to deal with what Jay Adams has called heart sins. These are the sins that don't grow into full-blown sin against another. They're sins like lust or envy or covetousness. These sins need to be confessed to God. So the biblical pattern is confess your sins to as wide of an audience that you have sinned against. So if I'm thinking sinful thoughts about someone, but it doesn't grow into a full-blown sin, I confess it to God. If, on the other hand, I say something unkind to that person or about that person, then I need to confess to God and confess to, to the person. Okay? So just remember that if you're, you know, struggling with a relationship with someone and you're just, you know in your heart you're coveting, but you haven't let it go full-blown, you haven't fed it so much, and, and, and you have controlled your tongue, you've prayed about it, you have 
you know, you need to confess your sin to God. But you don't need to go and say, well, I came to your house and it's beautiful and I was coveting it and I want you to know that. You know, please forgive me. You don't need to do that. But may need to if if you've said mean things. So hope, is that clear? Okay, I see north and south, so that's good. Um, another asterisk is remember the difference between a mistake and sin. If you make a mistake, you say you're sorry. If you sin, you seek forgiveness. So the example I've given is if I grab Rachel's purse and walk out the door because I thought it was my purse, that's a mistake. I'm going to say, Rachel, I'm so sorry, I grabbed your purse. Okay. Now, if I continually have a habit of grabbing Rachel's purse because I'm trying to you know, harass her, or I really want her purse because it's the most beautiful purse in the world, or I want what's in it, so I steal her purse, then I need to seek forgiveness because now I have sinned. So just a mistake, you can say, I'm sorry. But with full-blown sin, we don't want to just say, I'm sorry. And I had you look up as your homework, I believe you guys did, the definitions of sorry, apologize, and confess, I think was the three. So the reason why we don't just say, I'm sorry, is all that does when I say I'm sorry is it expresses a feeling. It asks nothing of the other person. And what an apology is, is when I say I want to apologize, an apology is a formal justification. It's a defense or an excuse. So in other words, I did what I did and ultimately it's not my fault, it's your fault, is usually how apologies come across. Another thing we don't want to do is say, please forgive me if but maybe perhaps. So please forgive me if I hurt you. Please forgive me, but you were being unreasonable. I've just put it off on the other person. You know, and I, we have lived recently in the day of, um, Great apologies that are awful. There are great examples and illustrations. Brian Williams, everybody hear he, how he got in trouble about lying where he was. He was not on a helicopter that got shot down. He was behind it or showed up an hour later. I don't know. And so he did what, and if you watch, because once, every time I teach this, they they come constantly, and I it's just like oh thank you I've got another example, um, and there there's a plethora of horrible horribleness. They just don't know what they're doing, and I'm not really surprised. But here's what William said: I want to apologize. I made a mistake in recalling the events of 12 years ago, and then he goes on to say. I said I was traveling in an aircraft that was hit by RPG fire. Okay, I'm sorry. I find it hard to believe. If you got hit by RPG fire, you know. You don't make that kind of mistake. But he says, I was instead in a following aircraft. 
hello, if I'm falling and I see that, I think I'm gonna be pretty clear that I'm not on that. But this was a bungled attempt by me to thank one special veteran and by extension, our brave military men and women. Okay, I hope they know they have my greatest respect and also now my apology. They now have his excuse. So thank you, Brian Williams. And this actually came with a list of, he joined the list of memorable on-air apologies. Tiger Woods, Elizabeth Hasselbeck, Melissa Harris-Perry, Ray Rice, Rachel Smalley, Mark McGuire, and Fox News Channel even had to apologize. But what he did in this is classic. He said, you know, A, I made a mistake. He gave a defense. He was just doing it to be nice. He just, I mean, really, do you blame him? He wanted to press recognition to, to this, the, the um, one special veteran, and by extension, the whole military. He was doing something gracious. It's like, okay, Brian. So that's not what we want to do. We don't want to say things like, I am sorry if I hurt you, but you are difficult to get along with. Don't want to do that. But here is what we want to do. When we have sinned, we want to confess our sin. And when do we want to do it? We want to do it immediately. We want to pray to the Lord. We want to ask for his grace to help us. But Matthew 5.23 gives us instruction. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. We need to go immediately. When we recognize I have sinned against somebody, we need to go. And what we need to do is we need to confess. And to confess means to say the same thing. It's to agree with God. We want to confess our sin to God. And 1 John 1, 9 is such a comforting verse. If or when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we first want to go to God and confess our sin. We want to repent, we want to change, we want to turn from our sin, and we want to go. We want to go and seek forgiveness. And what do we want to say? Will you please forgive me? And the reason we want to say that is then the other person can say, yes, I will forgive you. Now, if they don't want to forgive you, we'll kind of deal with that. Um, but that's them. We need to do what God has called us to do, regardless of how the other person responds. And so on here, on, on your handout from Peacemakers are the seven A's of confession. You want to address everyone involved, all of those whom you've affected. So if I've just sinned against my husband, I need to go and seek his forgiveness. If I have sinned against my whole family by doing something, I need to gather them up and I need to seek all of their forgiveness. Um, it's everyone you've affected. We want to obviously avoid if, but, and maybe or perhaps, do not try to excuse your wrongs. We need to admit specifically both our attitudes and actions. 
We need to acknowledge the hurt. That's the place where you can say, you know, when I did that, I am sorry. I know that hurt you. But don't stop there. Keep going. Will you please forgive me? We need to accept the consequences, such as making restitution. If I have stolen Rachel's purse, and because of that she couldn't get to work, and she missed a day of work and a day's wages, I need to take care of that. We need to, to make restitution where possible. We need to alter our behavior. We need to change our attitudes and actions. Um, if I'm a purse stealer, I need to tell Rachel, I will never steal your purse again or anyone else's. We, that's part of it is, you know, I'm going to do my best not to do this again. And we need to, again, ask for forgiveness. And remember the gospel. Remember, we can change. We can be more like Christ. What confession is, what we're doing in that is saying, you are right. I did wrong you. I did sin against you. It's admitting what has been charged is true. In the final analysis, true confession is agreement with another that is in agreement with God's word. And again, what does it sound like? Will you please forgive me for not listening to your opinion? I'm sorry that I hurt you when I did that. Um, Jay Adams gives another piece of counsel, and that is stick entirely to your own sin. It's not, you know, that whole, well, I did that because of what you did first. That's not what we do. So what, what happens, what do I do if somebody comes to me and tells me that I've sinned against them and I agree with them? They come and they point it out and say, you know, when you did X, Y, or Z, that, that really hurt me and that was sinful. How do I respond biblically? And I want to remind you, be approachable so that if you're doing that, I mean, we're in a lot of relationship um, every day with our family, with our friends, in our homes, our workplace, in our church, um, in our small groups, in our discussion groups. If I agree, if somebody comes to me and points out sin, if I agree, what do I need to do? I think we need to thank them for coming to you because it's not easy to go. I think we all would agree. We'd rather just let it go, let it go. Um, we need to ask them to forgive you. We need to confess our sin to the Lord. We need to thank the Lord for his mercy to you in revealing your sin and for paying the price for that sin. And then we need to repent. We need to change. So that's kind of the easy one. What do we do if someone comes and tells me that I've sinned and I don't agree? And C.J. Mahaney addresses this. He says, don't be put off when a friend's observations may not be 100% accurate. I've found that there's truth to be gleaned at times, even from an enemy's critique. Humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from another's input. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. We need to be humble. when some, If somebody comes, we need to be humble. We need to listen to them. 
Jerry Ragg talks about um, in his book, Exemplar Exemplary Spiritual Leadership. He says in his chapter on criticism, and I think criticism is very similar to somebody coming and pointing out sin, and that's why I think it's helpful. Um, he says we need to learn how to listen. Don't just hear, but listen by, genuine, by showing genuine interest in what's being communicated. Ask questions when clarity is needed. And this is where I have to be careful. He says, be careful, however, that questions are not an attempt to divert attention from the central issue being raised. So, for example, we might want to say, help me understand or please be patient with me and tell me again what the issue is. I like to divert attention. Like, well, you know, you said that happened at 2 o'clock on Wednesday, and it really, I think, happened at 5 o'clock on Wednesday, so you're wrong. That's what we want to avoid. We want to have godly responses. We want to listen without interrupting or forming snap conclusions or sitting there the whole time thinking, how am I going to respond? How am I going to respond? Don't attack the messenger, and that's often what I want to do. Our message must be, Lord, how can I learn from what this person is saying? Now, if I'm not sure I agree with their assessment, thank them for coming. Even if you don't agree, you can thank them for coming and bringing it to your attention. You can be thankful that this person cared enough to come to you. You may want to ask for some time to consider what they've said. You can say at this point, you know, I am sorry that I've hurt you. Um, and I want to think about this. I want to process this. Let me get back to you. You may want to ask others to help you see your sin, especially if somebody's saying, you know, your attitude, your tone, it's, it just seems like it's unkind. Um, pray about it. Ask the Lord to show you if there's merit in what they're saying. And I believe the Lord will honor that prayer. Um, we need to be thankful that somebody would have, I would say, the guts to come. Because if you've ever gone to talk to somebody, it's scary. Um, and I just want to encourage you to see somebody that would take, that would be so kind to come to, to bring that to you. See them as an instrument in the hand of God. That God is using that person in your life to sanctify you. I would not encourage someone to confess something as sin that they don't believe is sin. Jay Adams says, one must never confess a sin what he is not sure biblically is sin, nor should he confess to sins that he does not believe he has committed, merely in order to appease another who has charged him with wrongdoing. Confession must be the genuine heartfelt conviction of the repentant confessor. Um, to just say, oh, yeah, 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 okay, I agree, yeah, I'm a big sinner, you know, yeah, I was harsh. You know, if you don't mean it, the other person will know, but more importantly, the Lord will know. So I just really, really want to encourage you, but don't just blow that person completely off. Hear what they say. Pray about it. Seek others out. 
Um, so now we're going to switch gears. What about when I've been offended? When someone has sinned against me? What do I do if someone sinned against me? They come and ask me to forgive them. What's required of me? And here's another reminder. Lots of reminders in here. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness perfectly, they give you a Brian Williams kind of, will you, you know, I'm apologizing, I'm really sorry. Maybe they say that, oh, I'm sorry. Or they throw in an if or a maybe. You need to be gracious and you need to forgive. Um, you may at some point need to ask some questions, but your heart attitude needs to be a forgiver. The definition for forgiveness from Ken Sandy is to forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Ephemi, a Greek word that is often translated as forgive, means to let go, to release, or remit. It often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Cherizome, Another word for forgive means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. This word shows that forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, it does not simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, Forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sins and release the person from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty of our sins. Remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalties they deserve. One of the primary passages on forgiveness. So if someone's coming to you, they're seeking forgiveness. One of the places you may want to go is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is the parable of the unmerciful and unforgiving servant. And this is the picture of someone with this huge, massive, unpayable debt. He's forgiven by the king, and then he's released, released from the debt, and he goes out and he finds someone that owes him like a day's wage. And wants that person thrown in prison, he wants that person to pay the penalty. That's, that's the picture of us. We who have been forgiven so much by Christ, who deserved none of our sin. I mean, Christ was perfect. It's me saying, I've been forgiven all my sin by Christ, and now I'm going to go find someone else, and I am going to hold them under my wrath and make them pay the price. We don't want to do that. So if you're in a place where somebody is sinning against you, I would encourage you, read, put your face in Matthew 18. Um, one of the commentators on this passage says, 
How often have I wasted precious time by revolving in my mind all the aggravations of the injurious treatment to myself while I am forgetful that every day I have offended God in a much greater degree. Forgetful also that I have daily received from him such tender mercies as might make me forget all the mischief that my fellow creatures could do to me. And I have this written in my Bible um, by Matt in this passage. And this is from R.C. Chap Chapman. It's, if I have been injured by another, let me think to myself, how much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer. Luke 17.3 tells us, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We need to forgive. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And at that, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And I believe we need the Lord to increase our faith so we can forgive. So why do we forgive? Because it's a command. Remember, we have been forgiven. How can we not forgive? Think of the parable of the unmerciful servant. And our attitude towards those who have sinned against us should be humble. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. We're to be gentle. And we are to be patient. And I'm not going to read all those verses. Um, but I, that's our attitude when someone comes seeking forgiveness, is to be humble, gentle, and patient. So what do we do? That one's pretty easy. If somebody comes and is seeking your forgiveness, I mean, it can be tricky if it's a moat. They keep sinning over and over and keep coming. Scripture does talk about that. But what about when someone else is offending and they're sinning against you and they don't even seem to be aware of it? What in the world we, do we do then? And another reminder, we need to be careful. Are we talking about a sin directly or are we talking about a preference? Um, and and that can be tricky. If, if we're just talking a preference, like I prefer someone to do something a different way than they're doing it, but it's not directly sin, um, we, need, we need to consider that. But what do I do when someone else is offending against me? So what are my options? Do I have options? And I think we have some options. One is we can choose to overlook the sin. There are some offenses that should be overlooked. Remember what Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That should be our attitude. Our heart should be to cover over a multitude of sins. We are called to restore, though. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, 
even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, it doesn't say you who are elders, it says you who are spiritual, that means you who are Christians, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I do believe love should cover over a multitude of sins. However, there are times where a sin, somebody else's sin, is too serious to overlook. And Ken Sandy gives some helpful suggestions for making that determination. So some questions you can ask yourself are, is it dishonoring to God? If someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think less of God, his church, or his word, I think we need to go. Is it damaging your relationships? Anything that has disrupted the peace and unity between two Christians must be talked over and made right. Hebrews 12:14 make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Is it hurting others? Directly would be an example, an example would be like drunk driving or child abuse. Or indirectly, it may be that the person is setting an example that encourages others to behave in a similar manner. An example might be if you saw me speaking poorly of my husband, um, that would be something you should come and talk to me and say, Ann, I, you know, you are speaking unkindly about Tom. We talk about that. That's, you're set, setting a bad example. Um, so you can, that's another question. Is it hurting others? And is it hurting the offender directly like drug abuse or by hurting their relationship with God or other people? Um, and Ken Sandy says, if a sin does not appear to be doing serious harm to your sister, it may be best simply to pray that she will see her need for her change without being confronted. On the other hand, if the sin appears to be dragging your friend under, you should try to help her. And I do want to say we need to be careful. We are not the fourth person of the Trinity. If you need counsel on, you know, is this something I need to go and talk to this person about? When you go seek counsel from someone, do your very best to flatten out the details so you give enough information so that the other person can help you but not know who you're talking about. Um, so remember that. You know, we, we, we are instruments, but we are not the fourth person of the Trinity. Something else to consider, and I think this is especially helpful in the close relationships, um, is this a pattern or is this a one-time thing? It may help you to think about it. If you are the one doing this, would you want someone to say something to you? Is it loving of you not to go to them? And talking about the pattern, if one time your friend, your husband, maybe even your child comes in and is grouchy, but you know, oh, it's been, you know, a 15-hour day and I know they're exhausted and they kind of snap. 
that's not typical, that's not normal, you may want to overlook that offense. And the other thing I think that is something important to do is know when you go, do it at the time that's best for them. If you know at late, late at night they can't even think straight, that is not the time to go and have that discussion. If the best time for them is early in the morning, even if that's not your best time, get up early and, and talk to them then. And another piece of advice from my husband is don't have a 30-minute conversation when you have five minutes. Don't do it as you're walking out the door and you know this might be one of those conversations that's going to take a while and you've got this much time. It just doesn't work. So I, I would highly encourage that. Um, here's some counsel from God's Word about going. Remember Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, he who, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Matthew 7, 12, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And remember, we need to have more concern for that person than we do for ourselves. So if we determine we need to go and we need to say something, Scripture also gives us this admonition, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to determine if we contributed to the problem and if we did, we may need to go and seek forgiveness first and then wait to talk to them about their offense. But we really need to follow scripture's counsel in that and evaluate where we're at. This doesn't mean, okay, never go, but it means deal with where you're at first. James 1, 19 and 20 tells us, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So remember that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's helpful to forgive the person in prayer before you go. Talk to God about what's going on before you go. That way you're ready to grant forgiveness. It's saying, God, I forgive for what they did. I forgive them. Then you're ready if they say, will you please forgive me? It's not like you say, well, I already have, you know, I want you to know how holy I am. I already forgave you before I came. But you're ready. You're in a posture to say, yes, I forgive. 
When we determine we do need to say something, we need to go graciously and tentatively. And Ken Sandy gives this counsel. He says, unless you have clear, first-hand knowledge that a wrong has been done, give the other person the benefit of the doubt and be open to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. And I know he gives an example of two women that got in a, one woman was hurt because the other woman went blowing out church with her nose in the air, blasted out of the church and didn't say hi to her friend. And the friend was just so offended by that. What she didn't know was the lady went running out of the church with her nose in the air, had a nosebleed. She didn't know. She was offended without even asking. So we need to go graciously. We need to go tentatively. Remember Proverbs 18, 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes in and, and examines him. Remember your attitude should be humble, gentle, and patient. So if I go and I share with this person how I believe they've sinned, if they agree and seek my forgiveness, grant it. Grant them forgiveness. Don't dwell on the incident. Don't bring up the incident again and use it against them unless admonishment is needed. Maybe it is. This is the tenth time you've gone. And they're like, well, I've never done that before. And well, you know, I, yes, I remember I came to you and this was what happened. But don't hold it. If you've forgiven as best as you can, don't bring it up against them again. I will not talk to others about the incident or gossip, and I won't allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. So what do I do if they don't agree with me and I still believe something is sin? And this is where church discipline comes in. And I would encourage you, if you're in that kind of situation, to go to our church's biblical convictions because it explains church discipline. Um, and that's in Matthew 18. So I'm not going to read all of that, but I would just encourage you that you go to them first. And then if you need to, you may need to go a second or third time. And then you may need to involve others. But if you need help with that, going to the biblical convictions of the church will be really helpful. And you may need to involve the elders. Um, so now we're still at this place where I've gone to somebody and they're not repenting. They're not seeing. So what's my attitude now? Does this mean, well, they're not seeing. They are up to their eyeballs in sin. Do I now have a free pass from the Lord that I get to sin boldly? Of course not. No. We need to, and this is especially hard. We need to control our tongue, and we need to continue to say only what is helpful and beneficial to others. We need to seek counsel and support and encouragement from spiritually mature advisors. We need to keep doing what is right, no matter what others do to me. 
we need to recognize our limits by resisting the temptation to take revenge and by remembering that being successful in God's eyes depends on faithfulness, not results. And we need to continue to love our enemy by striving to discern and address his or her needs. And I do want to say one quick thing. When I say um, keep doing what is right no matter what others do to me, if someone is being physically abused, they need to continue doing what is right but they need to involve the authorities. Um, it is not, you know, I am not saying you are a doormat and if you're getting, you know, beat, that you just, you know, you just need to trust the Lord and continue being beaten. No, you need to call the authorities. Um, so that's, especially as you deal with other women, please know that there, you know, we need to use the resources that, that the Lord has in place, and that is one of them. So I would never want to be misunderstood on that. So, again, I kind of, I mean, this, I just feel like this is so much information, and I hope this gives you kind of a pattern of what to do and some steps. Um, there's, you know, if you're stuck, please talk to me. We can work through it. Um, but Philippians 4 is kind of, Ken Sandy has called that the mini course in peacemaking, and I think it's really helpful for us. Um, if, if you read Philippians 4, 4, it kind of breaks down like this. And so this, this kind of takes all of this and hopefully puts it in a neat little package. But the first thing we need to do is check your attitude and change it. We need to rejoice in the Lord always. We need to let our gentleness be evident to all. We need to replace anxiety with prayer. We need to see things as they, they are, and we need to practice what we've learned. And that's that passage from Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Um, it kind of takes those verses and just squishes them together. That is a good place to go. Again, if you're in the midst of conflict, is to read that passage of Scripture as an encouragement to you of what to do. One almost last thing okay, is restoration. Um, where, again... Peacemaking can be tricky. It's not just black and white, you know, do these five magic steps and it's going to work out. Um, sometimes it doesn't work the way we want it to, but we need to be faithful to do what God has called us to do regardless of the results. But when we think of restoration, here's something helpful again from peacemakers. Although reconciliation can sometimes take place with little or no special effort, in most cases you will need to remember the saying, if you are coasting, you must be going downhill. In other words, unless a deliberate effort is made to restore and strengthen a relationship, it will generally deteriorate. This is especially true when you are recovering from intense and prolonged conflict. Moreover, unless you take definite steps to demonstrate your forgiveness, 
the other person may doubt your sincerity and withdraw from you. Peacemaking women uses this analogy. True forgiveness sets us free to work towards restoration of the relationship. As is often the case, we may not feel like close friends at the end of the peacemaking process, even though we've reached a point of reconciliation. This is because the need for restoration still exists. To better understand this concept, it's helpful to make the distinction between reconciliation and restoration. And then here's the analogy, and I do think this is helpful. Think of the analogy of a broken bone. If a leg is broken, the doctor sets the bone and the gap is healed, so it's reconciled. This is what happens when someone confesses to us and we forgive. In the same way that a freshly set bone is not ready to bear weight, a broken relationship newly reconciled often needs time and help to be fully restored. A broken bone might need a cast or physical therapy for complete restoration. The same thing happens to a relationship following reconciliation. It often takes prayer, time, and focused effort to build trust back into a formerly broken relationship. A good rule of thumb, the greater the fracture, the longer the recovery time. Just as a healed bone that never bears weight will never grow stronger, relationships that are avoided or neglected will never grow stronger. God's grace and mercy enable us to strengthen reconciled relationships. We may send cards or emails, take extra time to share a gift that truly communicates love, or any other act. Countless acts of kindness that communicate our commitment to the relationship. Reconciliation is an event, but restoration is a process that slowly restores the relationship. And now we're almost done. And who knows what I forgot. What do you guys always do every time you meet? The disciplines, yes, I did not forget them. We're doing them last. So flip over your notebook and let's just go. How did this lesson apply to the disciplines? Okay, well, the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Well, our first need is to be reconciled to God. We must continue to pursue our relationship with God through his word, and we must remember the gospel and what Christ did for us by coming from heaven to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sin, and rising from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. We must remember that we, we can't be peacemakers if we're not reconciled to God. So the gospel is the first place. The second place then flows into the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And I think we might agree that often our homes are the place where the most conflict happens with our immediate family 
with those that we would say we love the most. That can be where we let our hair down and we feel like we get a pass and we can sin boldly. And so we need to be peacemakers in our homes and in our families. And then into ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So now I can minister to those in my household and those in the church by seeking forgiveness when I've sinned, forgiving others when they sin against me. I can go when I need to go. I can come alongside someone when I need to come alongside them. And I can receive graciously from others when they come to me and point out my sin. So this lesson kind of encompasses all. Um, and so I just want to encourage us as a body to be peacemakers. And again, if ever I can be a help to someone, I will absolutely come alongside you and help you and probably lend you a book and tell you, here, look at this, this will help you. But I, I do want to encourage all of us to really seek to be peacemakers because we are commanded, we are called to do that. Christ died for that. Christ died for the church. And this, you know, within our families and within the church, we need to be different. You know, I'm not surprised that the world around us is a mess and that there's sin everywhere. You know, there's an expression, dogs bark and cats meow. I expect to see a lot of conflict out in the world. Road rage doesn't really surprise me. You know, people getting bent out of shape because somebody cut in front of them in line at the grocery store. Doesn't really surprise me. It does surprise me when somebody cuts in front of line at me, and that did happen at Kohl's, and I was like, I mean, this, she violated every rule, and I was in a hurry. So now I'm excusing my sin. But I'm not surprised. I am not surprised, but when it comes flowing out of my heart and, you know, my mind, as I'm trying not to be enraged, um, I need to be a peacemaker. I need to think, oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, where I'm cutting in front of somebody. And it can be those little things that fire us up the most. Um, so I just want to encourage us to be peacemakers. So will you pray with me? And then it's discussion group time. Dear Father, thank you for this time you've given us, Lord. Thank you for these ladies that are here. Thank you for the ladies serving with the children. Lord, I do pray that Grace Bible Church would be a church full of peacemakers, that our families would be different because of what you have done. Lord, help us to do what your word says. Lord, I just I pray for the discussion groups. I pray for the time together that the ladies will have. And Lord, I just pray that you will use this lesson. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.